This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Let's see. Right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to this, the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Um, my name is Nick Barley, and I'm the director of this festival. And uh, I very rarely chair events because I think I feel I have to run the festival. But there are some moments when I just can't resist, and this is one of them. Uh, I mean, I think you all know, just judging by your faces, that, that you know a bit about cycling. And you know what an important year this has been for British cycling. And you know, of course, that this has been a pretty important day for cycling in the world today with the announcements around Lance Armstrong. And so I think it's a particularly fine moment for us to be uh, welcoming this man, the Guardian cycling correspondent, and the author of a number of excellent books on cyclists such as Fausto Coppi, Laurent Fignant, and Tommy Simpson. And now, the author of the first British cycling book to hit number one in the bestseller lists. So please give a very warm welcome to William Fotheringham. Thank you. Thank you. Now, I'm delighted that William has literally just arrived in the car from Hereford, so uh, uh, he's in a state of high anxiety at making it in time. But you can relax now, you're with friends. Good. And, and I think before we start, we've really just got to uh, ask about Lance Armstrong. What are the implications of, the, of the, today's announcement on, on world cycling? What does it mean? Um, it's significant, um, let's just say that. Um, I think what's particularly significant about it is that for ooh, a good eight years, people have been waiting for some kind of movement on the question of whether Armstrong use performance-enhancing drugs or not. There has now been movement, um, and because we've, we, we've had what amounts to a, a concession that he isn't going to fight the case against the US Anti-Doping Authority, um, the head of WADA seems to view that as an admission, at, admission that he did use performance-enhancing drugs. If that is indeed the case, we can basically move on. We can say, right, that chapter is closed. We need to look at the evidence, if, because the some of that evidence will come out into the open. We need to look at it and we need to learn from it and then ho hopefully the sport can move forward. And that's the crucial thing is that it's, 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 it's hopefully the end of, it, of, an, of an era when everyone is going, what did Armstrong do? What was he? Did he? And finally, we, we have, it's not exactly an answer, but we have an indication and um, we can move on from that. Yeah, um, uh, Matt Seaton's column in today's Guardian paints a portrait of, of a man who, frankly, was a bit of a bully a difficult man to be around, and about whom many questions have been raised by many people. I mean, you 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 know him, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to I'm going to what 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 has to be remembered with Armstrong is that we're dealing with a human being. This is the it's it's quite it's, it's quite illustrative. It's quite um, what's the word? I don't know. It's intriguing looking at the, the news stories and the and the Twitter comments about Armstrong today because. I think back 20 years, and 20 years ago I was introduced to a young, brash, bright, extraordinarily likeable American, and that guy was called Lance Armstrong, and he'd only just turned professional. I think it would be September to, uh, 1992, and five years later, after that guy had suffered from cancer and come back, he was and recovered from cancer, he was about to do his comeback from if it makes come back to cycling. Um, I was the first European journalist to interview Armstrong after that comeback. And the reason I'm going to tell you this story is because what we have to remember is we're dealing with a human being. And the, the important thing with the Armstrong story is to look at the human being and say, how did the human being get from where I'm going to tell you to where he is now? And that's what we have to look at, look at and that's what we have to learn from. Um, so in 1997, I called up Armstrong I got a long rant from him on the phone about how nobody wanted him because of, because of his because he'd had cancer. No one believed he could come back. I said, "That's shocking," which it was, because he was a charismatic, talented cyclist, and he deserved the chance to try and do something spectacular. I arranged to meet him um, at a place called Cap Jean Ferrat, which is between Nice and Monaco, and he had been with his newly wed wife, or as I now think, his future ex-wife, um, <laughs> uh, 
um, they'd been they'd just come over from um, from America to um, go to his flat in Como, the flat that he had had before the cancer, to get his furniture. They'd driven over from Como to Monaco in a small hire car with a mattress tied to the roof. They turned up two hours late. I sat there outside this villa in the Hannah, howling gale and pitch dark, waiting for him to turn up. He turned up and he said, let's go out for dinner in Monaco. I thought, well, hey, mm. high life. We, um, I, I probably got into the back of the car, the small hire car with him and his future ex-wife, um, and we drove to Monaco, and we went to the Carrefour supermarket, and we bought red wine, several bottles, several packet salads, some pasta, and some tomato sauce. We went back to the deserted villa in Cap Saint-Jean-Ferrat, and we sat down. We sat down on the floor, because there was no furniture in the, in the apartment, or the villa, that, which he borrowed, which is where he was going to live the next year. There was not a stick of furniture in it. And the telling point of this evening was where he said to me, or he said to Christian, do you know, he said, I don't know how much, well, we, you know, we drank the red wine, quite a lot of it. Um, I can remember the music, which was, we listened to an album by The Verve called um, Urban, Urban Hymns. And we, at a certain point in the evening, him and Kristen were getting happily pissed. And um, he said to her, you know, I don't know how much furniture we should buy because I don't know how long I'm going to be here. So that was the uncertainty that he came back to. And it's, it's just very telling to look at where we are now and where we've travelled to since then. I don't mean we, me and Armstrong. I mean the sport, him. And we have to remember that there's a human being at the centre of this. And the core of it is how did he get from there to here? And when we look at that and learn, we'll have learned something. Yeah. Um, uh, we're very keen to make this a very interactive session, and I'm sure that um, all of you cyclists will want to ask more questions about Armstrong. Um, so but let's come back to I think to we'll that. need to come back to this and talk, because I'm sure you'll have questions. I'm sorry if I've to begun by ranting about Armstrong, but it's been occupying me all day. Yeah, no, I think it, we need to talk about I imagine you've come here to talk about Eddie Merckx and see, learn something about Eddie Merckx, so we can do that first. Yeah, but I think it, it, these are special circumstances. Um, but before we go, move on to this fantastic book, Merckx, Half Man, Half Bike, I just want to ask you briefly about your summer. Um, yeah. Yeah, you've, you've just had an extraordinary, memorable summer, I imagine. You know, you spent quite a lot of time with Bradley Wiggins, watching him yeah. uh, during the tour and, and from the velodrome. So just tell us a bit about, very briefly, about your experience of this summer and, and what Bradley Wiggins' uh, victories mean for us. Well, it's, it's quite, it was interesting because I, I was with Bradley recently and I looked at him and I said, I can't quite, I don't believe you won the Tour de France. <laughs> and, he, and he looked at me and he said, no, I don't believe it either. <laughs> and I think that's pretty much where we are with Bradley. We're, I mean, I'm struggling to take it in. I can't, I, I'm still struggling to get my head around the fact that a British cyclist has won the Tour de France. Um, 30, 35 years ago or something like that, 33 years ago, I became interested in cycling. I would never have conceived of it. 20 years when I began to be a journalist, 20 years ago, I would never have dreamt of it either. So it's very hard to get take on board. Yeah. Um, it's a monumental achievement and it's, you know, it's quite, you know, it was quite emotional to stand there on the Champs-Elysees and see him crossing that line in, in the yellow jersey and be physically on the spot and think, I will be able to tell my grandchildren about this, yeah. you yeah. know. Um, so Patrick, I'm relying on you and Miranda. In the future, um, I, I certainly felt very emotional. I don't know whether other people felt that. It was, I was I was moved to tears by uh, several times during the tour. Uh, the, the implications of it. I don't know if you, if you felt that as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I I had one quite emotional moment when I met him the day after he got the yellow jersey, and you know, you have a man hug on those occasions. That was quite emotional. Um, and I met his trainer on the Champs-Élysées, and I won't repeat what I said because it's a family environment. <laughs> um, his trainer is a guy called Shane Sutton, who's a fairly direct Aussie, so you can, uh, you don't have to express yourself as you would to in, in a family environment. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's it's been an incredible thing to live through, and it's been it's it's been a massive workload. That's the other thing that I'm, I keep going back yeah. to. It's uh, it's been a lot of hard work, and it's, it's but it is you know it's a magnificent position to be in. Eight you know, 
um, 2004, I wrote a book called Rural Britannia um, to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first Britain riding, uh, finishing the Tour de France, Brian Robinson. And lo and behold, the following year, there wasn't a, 2005, there was not a single British cyclist in the Tour de France, let alone were we going to win it. Yeah. So to move from that to a state where, you know, in the spring you're talking to Brad and Brad's saying, oh, you know, yeah, I really think I've got a good chance of winning this year. And you're thinking, well, yes, you know, I've watched you at Paris-Nice and I've watched you at the Tour of Romandie. And, Realistically, you've got a flipping good chance of winning this bike race, and it's an incredible position to move to. Yeah, and you know it's you know, and then you go to the velodrome and watch, you know, Sir Chris Hoy Strutt's stuff, and Laura Trott and Victoria Pendleton and the team pursuers, and you, you know, with the opposition in a position of complete um, disarray, yeah. and it, it it is quite mind blowing. Again, mind -blowing. it was mind blowing again to think you see, you know. I was, you know, I always look back to a day in 1996 when I went out for a bike ride with the, with the president of British Cycling, a guy called Brian Cookson. And me and Brian, whenever we meet, we look at the back at this because in, that, on, in 1996, at the end of that year, there was nothing. This sport was moribund, it was dead. Mm. Brian's organisation was down to something like 15,000 members or something. They've, they've now got nudging 60. I mean, there was no, ta you know, there was one talented cyclist and that was... Chris Boardman yeah. and Chris was pretty much he was at his peak and probably about to hit this hit the decline yeah. and that's where we were I mean, absolutely and you know we are now you know we have a you know we have a bike rider in the yellow jersey leading out a bike rider in in the rainbow jersey to win on the Champs-Élysées and it's it is the stuff of dreams it will so never be like, this good again. Well, I mean, so. we, yeah, look, I thought in Beijing it will never be good, this good again. I was going to retire after Beijing because I thought, what's the point? Nothing will ever top Beijing. <laughs> and I'm very glad I didn't. Here we are. Great. Well, that, that, again, let's come back to that. Uh, plenty of Yeah, I mean, there'll be lots on. of questions. You know, I hope you've got some questions about it, so we're we'll very happy to answer them. Yeah, but uh, it seems to me that that's a very good context within which to, to look yeah. at this really astonishing book. I mean, I've taken the dust jacket off, but it's a beautifully designed and beautiful book. And if you haven't read it yet, I, I can tell you that, that uh, William does a fantastic job of bringing alive uh, the races in which Eddie Merckx took part. Um, so one, one of the quotes that, that I really loved in here was that when, by Eric Fotorino. I don't know who he was. but he was, he, a, he was a writer. I think he wrote for Le, Le Monde. Right. He said, in the 1970s, wherever a bike race went, the word God was spelt M-E-R. C-K-X. Oh, can, can I tell you the joke, talking of God? Um, I'm going to... Uh, sorry about this. But no, go you, ahead. I, I have to tell you the joke. I have to, this, is, this, is, this is why I wrote the book, basically. Um, and if you've read the book, or you've read it in, in, in the encyclopedia, I, I apologise in advance. Um, this is for those who haven't read, read it. Um, there was a very talented cyclist who spent all his, all his bike racing life being defeated by Eddie Merckx. He spent his whole life. And it was a source of colossal frustration, as it was for the guys like Felice Gimondi, Roger de Vlamink, Rudy Altig, Walter Godefruit, all those guys. It was, he was in the same boat, constantly defeated. And one day, unfortunately, he died quite young. He got um, something happened to him, mowed down, I don't know, something bad. Anyway, he died. Don't know why, went to heaven. He arrived at the pearly gates, and he got, and St. Peter was there with a beautiful track bike. Absolutely glorious track bike, finest one he'd ever seen. And um, St. Peter gave him the track bike. It was in his kit, and he went down. And St. Peter led him to a beautiful velodrome, lovely surface, fresh made. Um, kind of like that's the Chris Hoy one in the other place is going to be. Um, <laughs> that, that city I dare mention here. Um, he got on the start line, and all all the greats of cycling who had predeceased him were there. So we're talking about Fausto Coppi, Alfredo Binder. Uh, whoever else, my brain's a mush. Um, the bike race starts, off he goes, track race, he, he absolutely nails it. Sir Chris Hoy style, he's going to win, he's going to win, it's clear. He's coming down the finish straight, it's all sorted. And as he's coming down the finish straight, he sees a wheel come past to his right. He looks over, he thinks, I don't believe it. It's Eddie. And he gets, a, and, and as has happened so often, the Merckx figure came past, and pipped him on the line off the track, threw his bike down, went over to St. Peter and said, I don't believe it. He's not dead yet. Eddie's not dead yet. He shouldn't be here. 
And St. So, so Peter says, you don't get it. That's God. He likes to pretend he's Merckx. <laughs> Sorry to digress. No, 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 um, no, no. It is one of the great, great stories. Uh, and it is in the book, of course, uh, one of the lovely tales you tell. Uh, let's, just, let's just start. Uh, well, that's why I wrote the book. Right. Fundamentally. You, you make How can some guy be compared to God? Well, indeed. Well, that's, that's my question, really. Yes. Uh, let's just start with the facts. Why, you, you make the assertion that, that Eddie Merckx was the greatest cyclist yes. of all time. And, yes. And possibly the events of today confirm that. But that, no, there was never any doubt anyway. Right. But what, what are the hard facts? that? that well, the hard facts are that um, Merckx achieved a hit rate in cycling that is very hard to conceive of. I mean, the point is, if you like, I mean, I imagine some of you out there will be will have ridden road races. You'll know what it's like not to win road races. You know how hard it is to win a road race. I mean, for, for those who don't, the point about road racing is that there is an infinite number of variables. There's the opposition, there's the weather, there's your own form, there's the circumstances of the race, there's the tactics. Winning a single road race is very, very hard to do. To do what Merckx did and win nearly 50% of the ones you start, he would start around 120. And there was one season, I, th I think it might be 1971, where he hit 54 out of 120. So to do that, even if some of those races are exhibition events where you're allowed to win, that's still quite remarkable. And that's the point about Merckx, it's the hit rate. It's the fact that he could turn up in the spring, as he did in 1975, and win, I think it was four or five of the biggest one-day classics in the world, bang. You back know, to back. Back to back. And the fact that, you know, 1973, he could win a load of classics, win the Tour of Spain, win the Tour of Italy within, how long would it be, 10, 11 weeks. It's this astonishing hit rate, this ability to deliver day after day after day, yeah. and to do it in circumstances where it is very difficult to do. Yeah. And that's very different from today's cyclists, where they focus on the Tour. Well, oh, they don't. No, no, they what, only what, after the What about the guy who's just won um, Paris-Nice, Tour of Romandie, oh, Dauphine okay. Libre, and... Right. All right, so maybe there are a few that's these that, days. That's an important exception. point. Well, that's, that's an important point about, about Mr. Wiggins, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, your general point, I'm sorry to pick you up there, but it's just, it is just something very important for us to remember about Brad, that he's, he's managed to do that and, and, and tack on the Olympics at the end. Right. And that's quite, you know, that's something that's actually very special what he's achieved. It's not just about the touring. It's something that he's actually very keen for people to recognise. Right. Because, it's, because he knows his, his cycling history and he feels that that's almost bigger than winning the Tour, I think, is the, is the stringing those wins together. Because no one, no one else has ever done that. Not even Merckx. So that's a hint at the emerging greatness of, of a modern-day cyclist. Yeah, I think it is. And it's a, it's, a hint at, it's a hint at somebody who's achieved something very, very special. Yeah. Um, well... For those people who haven't read the book, um, w one of the things that it includes is some absolutely glorious and incredibly evocative photographs of Eddie Merckx throughout his career. And, and I thought it might be quite nice for us to yes. have a look at one or two of them. And maybe perhaps you could just tell us. Uh, I will, I'll have to look at what in order to make it work. Towards you. There we go. Well, this is Paris Roubaix. Um, I think it's 1967. It's the classic Merckx pose. Um, at the front of uh, at the front of a breakaway group, I'm not actually sure who the guys behind him are, um, but it is just your classic Eddie Merckx. And what what's interesting is he's doing this very young. He's it's 1967, so he's 22 years old. Um, so he'd won his first professional. It could be it could be it could be, it could be 66 actually. It's hard. It's hard, I mean because it's it's the Peugeot jersey, so he rode for Peugeot 66, 67. Yeah. Um, so it could be either of those years. He's 21 or 22, but already. And the other thing, of course, is if you look at the expressions of the guys, the two guys immediately behind him, that's an expression which um, <laughs> you'll, <laughs> see in, you'll see in many photographs where Merckx isn't on his own. Yeah, absolutely. And that just says it all, really. It says it all. The, other thing, the other thing that's interesting about the photograph, of course, is that you could go to that village now, and if Paris-Roubaix still comes through that village, as it might well do, that scene might well not have changed very much. That's very much your northern French village. Yeah. Very typical. And of course, uh, uh, those who don't know about Paris-Roubaix... I mean, Sorry, it's, uh, it's famous. It's, yes, it's, very, it's, celebra it's, it's, it's the celebrated classic that they run at Easter that includes um, about 50 kilometres of, of, of very nasty cobbles which, um, on which guys puncture and crash and suffer. Yeah. The hell of the north. The hell of the north, exactly. Yeah. It, it is true hell. 
And so this was right at the beginning of his career, yeah. when he's just, uh, he's, he's not popular, and he's marking no. himself out as a racer who leads from the front. Yeah, and they, uh, this, that's exactly it. He's, I, it's hard to tell me, it's hard to tell exactly whether he's, whether he's chasing the wheel ahead of him or, or he's driving the brake. But in any case, it's classic Merckx, the set of the jaw, the aggressive riding style. I mean, he's, he's very aggressive in the way he rides his bike, yeah. like a boxer. And, and if I think, as you say, this is 1967, then, then this is the, the year before his, the great year. It's the year before he becomes truly great. He'll yeah. win the world championships at the end of this year. And this is where he becomes truly great. This is the finish at the Trecime di Lavaredo in the Giro d'Italia. It's the snowstorm. It's the breakaway starting, I think, 10, 12 minutes ahead at the bottom of the climb. He overtakes them one by one. Um, it's a snowstorm and... <laughs> He makes no concessions. Look at the arms. I think he's got, he has got woolly gloves on, which I guess is a bit soft. Um, well, a bit disappointing, really. I'd have expected better of him. Um, so no, you know, bare legs, bare arms, um, racing hat, nothing else. He's world champion, you can see from the, the bands on the jersey and, and the stripes, just, just catch him around his chest. Yeah. But it is the moment where, as the Italian, I think it was Gazzetta dello Sport wrote the next day, comincia il ciclismo. Cycling begins. Basically, it's it's the it's the moment when that new era of Merckx begins. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are loads of fantastic passages in here, but um, there was a, a section there in which you describe this snow scene. I don't know if you want to read it. Oh yeah, okay. Oh, gosh, of all the hostile forces that racing cyclists fear, wet snow in the mountains is dreaded the most. It melts on the road, and the result is a constant spray of water just above freezing temperature. It takes no time for a cyclist to be soaked through from below, while from above the snow falls on bare arms and legs, the skin burning with the cold. As well as the usual challenges of racing up and down mountain passes, redoubtable enough in temperate weather, the descents are a freezing hell, with numbed fingers pulling on unwilling brake levers, road spray and snowflakes lashing the eyes as they strain to see the next hairpin. Yeah, no, no Oakleys there, you see. Um, <laughs> body and mind are tested to the limit as hypothermia sits in. Yeah, and the, the, and the next photograph in the sequence is where he crosses the line and is, uh, yeah, there we are, in the blankets. Um, yeah, body, this, this is what the cyclists of the Giro d'Italia face as they race towards Lavaredo on the 12th stage of the three-week race. The rain had begun that morning at the start in Gorizia and drenched them all day. As the final climb approached, it turned to snow. Yeah. And it, it astonishing is astonishing stuff. It's it? astounding. It's absolutely wonderful. And, and so this is the beginning of, of, of the realization that this is this is somebody really, really very special. Um, but then what I thought was really interesting was that a year later, uh, th this situation. Tell us, tell us why he's crying on his hotel. Yeah, bed. this is the um, the infamous um, Savona scandal where he's thrown out of the Giro d'Italia, which he's dominating ag again um, for a positive doping test, which. It's very hotly disputed, it's a very murky one. Um, the circumstances in which that test was taken would not stand, stand up today. That's, that's the bottom line, that's the problem. He swears blind that he's innocent. Um, but more the point, it's more, it's more than his assertions of innocence, it's simply the fact that it's not a test that can be measured by today's standards because it's, it's carried out with no, you know, he's not present when the second sample is taken, it's done in a mobile laboratory. Um, the conditions are marginal to say the least it's quite possible it, you know, it, it could legitimately be claimed that, that the sample was spiked though we'll never know because of that you have that benefit you know he was given the benefit of the doubt a few weeks later yeah yeah is that me I don't think that's me um and one of the interesting things about the the timing of this of course was that you know, he, he was thrown out of the giro d'italia yeah. that year yeah. wasn't he yeah and then the drugs ban was overturned yeah just in time for him to be able to enter the tour of that year. And what resulted was this incredible tour where he won by, I think it's the biggest margin since the war. Um, my 17 minutes. Yeah, it's, it's a massive, massive margin. And more to the point, it's, he wins, I think, seven stages or something like that. It, it, is, the most, it is one of the most incredible tour performances. And the, and the irony is, of course, that one of the reasons, it's, well, two of the re reasons it's happened is because of this, because he's very angry. He wants to prove it, but also for the first time, probably, probably the only time he rode the tour, he started fresh. He was rested. Yeah, he had ah, ten days off yeah. the bike, yeah, yeah. and that was very, very rare for him because he was constantly racing, constantly active, never stopped. So actually, having ten days off the bike and then preparing for the tour with smaller races—that's almost like what Mr. Wiggins would have done. Right. It's like it's a classic, what they call a classic taper, where you you have the the effort, you back off, and then you 
a few little little bits to keep to keep the, to keep the system awake. Right. But, but tell us about uh, there was one particular moment in that tour. It was, it was Moronx. Are we talking about Moronx? When, when he was already eight minutes ahead yeah, at yeah. the start of the stage, he he attacked uh, going up the Col d'Obisque and he stayed away. That's right. He was away for 140 kilometres through the through the Pyrenees. Um, he attacked at the top of the Tourmalet and then was rode alone over the Obisque and and into Po. And he had no need to do it. It was, um, it was described by the, uh, I think it was the tour organiser as, as a gratuitous act. It was, un, it was unnecessary. He didn't need to do it to win the race. Um, it was just to prove a point. It was, part, it was to prove a point, but also because he had something which a lot of the great cyclists have, which is paranoia, where you want, if you don't get those eight minutes and something happens, let's say you then lose the tour by eight minutes, two seconds, you'd kick yourself. Yeah. So that's the point. You always go for what you can get when you can get it. But he, and he went for it, and, and inevitably, of course, staying away for so long, he got yeah. the bonk. Yeah, and, and it could have it could have gone wrong. It could have gone wrong. I think this is what you know. Most people sort of assume that it was this, you know, happy procession with him, you know, beetling along at full fifty kilometres an hour, and the opposition going, oh no, not again. But actually, it wasn't that simple. You know, he nearly got. Um, you know, he, he started suffering at one point. He got hyperglycemia. Uh, at that point, if he'd it could have gone the other way for him. Yeah. So it's it's not it's not as sedate and easy as it looks. No. Absolutely. Or as seamless as it looks. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think it ever is. No. And he, and he was a cyclist, uh, as far as I understand it, who who always his relationship with pain was a strange one because he was a bit of a hypochondriac. Total hypochondriac. But it was it was Felice Gimondi who complained that you know Merckx would turn up and he'd have a headache and he'd have a sore knee and he'd be going to abandon and then at the end he'd put five minutes into them all. Yeah. And it, used to be, it, obviously, it obviously really wound up um, the opposition because you'd, they'd turn up and, and it wouldn't be mind games, it was just the fact that Merckx was obviously very, very sensitive to his body. I mean, I think a lot of the top athletes are. Um, and he was paranoid about, you know, oh no, this might happen. And, yeah. Yeah. But then, uh, uh, just l later on in that same year, 1969, after he'd won the tour in such extraordinary circumstances, this happened. Just this, yes. And this is the moment it's, um, it could all have ended there. I mean, it all ended there for the guy who, this is an Adurni race, um, race behind small motorbikes. Um, it, it all ended on this, a few yards away for the guy who was driving the Derny because he, he died, a guy called Fernand Wampst. Um, Eddie isn't far, you know, he's, he's in a coma for, I can't remember how long, um, half an hour. You know, he's, he's, out, he's out for a long time. He's never the same again. You look at the bike, the impact on the bike is quite massive. Um, it came down to a few inches, I was told, by his soigneur who was there. Um, he lands on the concrete at the bottom. They're basically, they're riding around the track. One guy's derny goes wrong. Um, it's wings in front of Merckx. Merckx, should have, they should have gone up, they went down, which is the mistake, a mistake on the track because if you go up, you can always go round. If you go down, you, you, you go into the guy who's fallen off and he, because he slides. Um, apparently, he clipped, only clipped him by a couple of inches. And at the bottom, he, I think he landed on the concrete only by six inches, not on the grass. So it was, you know, it, it all comes down to inches. Yeah. And his back was never the same again after this. Right, so from that point on, he, w he really was, it wasn't yeah. just hypochondria, but it no, really no, was. No, no, I mean, there were, there were, it was constantly, you know, constant pain. He was never the same. And he, he would insist that, you know, he couldn't climb as well. Um, he's, he's, he seems to get a lot of sciatica um, because he's, and, he, and this is why he has the constant adjustment of his position. And, and yeah. that was a complete obsession. I mean, he would, I was told a lovely story about how he, um, his mechanic and manager would keep several different sets of handlebars and stems in the back of the car, in the back of the team car during a race. So that if Eddie decided he wanted new handlebars or stem because he felt slightly uncomfortable, they would change it. You know, they'd change them over during the race. They managed it in three minutes on one occasion. And this is with, you know, changing brake cables, you know, switching brake cables and all that. Um, and, you know, he'd, he'd asked them to, to, to get bikes for him from Belgium during races, you know, fly them down. New bikes. It was on, yep, you know, this bike is hanging, you know, there's that bike hanging up in my cellar, I want it, please. Yeah. <laughs> one of the things I was fascinated to read in this book, which I hadn't known about, was that one of his legs was slightly longer than the other. Yeah. And um, yeah. I, 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 as a cyclist myself, my leather saddle when I was about Yeah, it gets worn out on one side. Yeah, because yeah. one of my legs yeah. is... Yeah. Yeah. But what did he do to try and compensate for well, that? Well, I think he put little, little insoles in his shoes. 
Um, that, was, that was one thing. But you see, at the end, towards the end of his career, he, I mean, he rode the 1974 tour with a uh, with a wound on his crutch, which had had to be operated the day before, two days before, and hadn't hadn't closed properly. Um, and that was related again to that same thing where you're, you know you're on the saddle, you're putting in the efforts, and um, the saddle's not quite right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, look, look, from this point on, really, he was dominant, wasn't he? Right through the early seventies. Yeah. yeah. Apart from there was there was, one, there was obviously the Tour de France in nineteen seventy one where he could have lost, where Luis Ocaña put him on the rack completely. Yeah. And then Ocaña got injured. Yeah, and the and the interesting thing about that, of course, is that it is now you know there is. You can sit there with old older cycling fans and debate until the cows come home. You know, would would Akanya have won if he hadn't fallen off, or would Merckx have won? You know, because Akanya had the lead, but Merckx was putting him under pressure constantly for the minute he got the lead. He gave him absolutely no respite, mm. um, and because of that, Akanya <coughs> fell off. I mean, had Merckx not put him under pressure by attacking him wherever he could, um, Okanya would probably have won the tour. Yeah. And, and then there was seventy-three. Except he when might he not have won it anyway. But, um, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. No, yeah, he might not have won it because obviously, because he, you know, he might not, have, he might have fallen off somewhere late or cracked mentally late. You don't know. But what you do know is that the pressure was constantly on. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, before we open it out to questions, I, I just wanted to show one more, one final picture, which is uh, Max towards the end of his career. I think this is uh, Paris Roubaix again in nineteen seventy-five. Uh, just, just tell us about how how his career sort of descended and, and uh, towards his eventual retirement? Well, I mean, the, the, f the first thing that's interesting about the picture, of course, is that it's, it's Roger de Vlamic immediately behind him. And it's... His great rival. Mark, Mark de Meyer to the left, who died a few years after that. And if, what's also quite interesting, if you look at um, de Vlamic, you can see that Bradley was channeling de Vlamic all summer. <laughs> Oh, the mutton chop. Oh, the the, oh yeah, sorry, the, you know, the, the chop, sorry, you know, it's absolutely. Um, and it is a classic instance of, you know, it's la course en tête, get to the front, drive, pulverise the opposition. But this is, this is the spring of 1975, Merckx is in the World Championship, the World Champions jersey. It's from this, this was basically his last big spell of form. After this, he goes to the Giro d'Italia, no, he doesn't go to the Giro, no, he doesn't, that's right, he misses the Giro that year, um, because he's ill, I think. Um, he gets beaten in the Tour de France, rides the Tour de France with the broken jawbone at the end, the, bro the broken cheekbone at the end. Um, basically, puts himself in a box there and is never the same again. Yeah. And it just fizzles away, and he doesn't quite know how to stop. Mm. Um, I want to come back to that course on Tet uh, in a second, but before we open it out to the audience, just tell us about the, the, the process of writing the book. Uh, you met Eddie Merckx. Yep. Tell us what, what, well, what it was like to meet him. I met Eddie a long time, 15 years before I wrote the book, because the point is that the book is not authorised, and Merckx had a, has a, had a deal with a Belgian publisher and was not available. Um, meeting him, you know, but it, you know, it, it, I, I did, when I wrote first a copy and Tom Simpson, I didn't meet either of them. No. So to some extent, you can write a biography without, them, without the involvement of the, um, of the subject. But no, Merckx, met, I met him in 1997. I was sent to interview him by a, a cycling magazine. Um, and the thing that struck me was I was late at the airport, the plane was late, um, I wasn't, um, but he waited and he stood there in the arrivals hall waiting for me and I was very, very touched by it because most, most times when you're a journalist and you go and meet one of, the, one of the legends, you make your own way or they send um, a gopher to get you if you're lucky, but they don't wait personally and then drive you. So he was an incredibly genteel, well-mannered well person. Yeah. And you know, and, and what was interesting was he got someone from his factory to give me a lift back, and the, the guy was sitting there saying, basically, oh yeah, we love Eddie, but actually he's just too nice for his own good. He's too nice to us. You know, people taking advantage. You know, and that, and that I think you know he's, you know, it's in, it's interesting because part of the point of the book was to explore the human side of the guy as well. So he has this reputation for being this all-consuming champion, this the cannibal, you know, the one who wants to devour his sport, whereas it's not actually quite as simple as that. It's born, I think, of insecurity and bizarrely a need to be loved. Yeah. So do you, do you feel that you got to the bottom in, in meeting him and in thinking about him, got to the bottom of why he managed to have this period of such domination, what, what it was about him? I don't know if I got to the bottom of it, I mean, but I could suggest quite a few reasons. I mean, he had a, he had a difficult relationship with his father, who was an immense perfectionist. Um, his mother was clearly 
concerned about him becoming a cyclist, didn't want him to become a cyclist. He, and it, it looked very much as if he had to prove himself all through his career. Um, he was looked after correctly at the start of his career as well, so he, he was not over-raced at, at a young age. Um, he, there are, there are, you, know, you, can look at, you can come to many reasons why he was, why he was as good as he was. Um, but as to whether I got to the bottom of it, that's for the readers to judge, I think. <laughs> you have to read and find out. I think there are some really interesting conclusions. Right then, if we can bring the lights up, uh, there's a roving mic uh, at the back. Now, I should just say that because these events are recorded, please wait until the mic gets to you so that, that your question gets recorded in, um, for, for our audio playback. So does anybody have any questions? It could be on the subject of Lance Armstrong, Wigo, or it could be on Max. Right, we've got one here, the third row. <coughs> Hi. Um, touch on subjects of yeah, Wigo and Cab. Just wondered what you would, how you would compare the achievement of British cycling with Wiggins and Cav to um, what the Germans managed 15 years ago with Ulrich and Zabel. Again, kind of out of nowhere in a way. I think if you look back at what happened with Ulrich and Zabel, I mean, if you take if you take out of consideration the fact that Ulrich. Zabel's confessed and Ulrich has confessed basically um, to, to the use of drugs. If you, if you look at, if you, if you take out the equation, what happened there was that you had a particular set of circumstances which was the, the reunification of the, of the two Germanies and the influx of talent from the East and the hunger that created among the guys who were bred in the East like Ulrich and Zabel. Um, so it was a particular set of circumstances and I think when you look at the the achievements of British cycling, you're looking at, again, a particular set of circumstances. You know, but I think what's different with the British cycling phenomenon is that it's been much more, it's, it's been, not exactly planned, but it's, 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 it's a programme. It's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's, and it's not a programme like the, like the old East German programme. It's a programme, you know, it's something where, in 1997, one guy, Peter Keane, said, I want to make this, this the number one, you know, I want us to be the number one cycling nation in the world, how are we going to achieve it? And it has all stemmed from that. Um, does that answer the question? Does it, is, that, is that the answer you're looking for? No, keep in the mic so we can record it. Thank I wonder if there's a debate over, you know, whose was the greatest achievement, although it's a bit pointless, but you know, that's what sports about, isn't it? It's, well, I mean, it, it, no, it, it, though it's, it's slightly invidious because Cavendish obviously has won many more stages of the tour than, than Eric Zabel, but hasn't won the points jersey as many times or won Milan Remo as many times. So it, it's, it's hard to say. I think, I think what you can say is that the British cycling thing phenomenon is much more sustainable because it's, been, it's built on much firmer foundations that I think you can say. I don't think you can say Wigo and, you know, I think, I think as an athlete, Bradley Wiggins is, is infinitely better than Jan Ulrich ever was. He's infinitely more hard work. You know, Ulrich would turn up at the start of the tour fat. Um, you know, and famously every spring it was like, you know, he would, you'd, take, you'd see pictures of him in Mallorca you know, looking like a barrel. And, and he would have faced this massive struggle by the end of the spring to come to form. And so, I suggest he had more natural know, talent. So well, he had a huge amount of talent, but he wasted it, you know. Uh, so I think, so I think what, what you can say is the British thing is built on, it's definitely built on better foundations. Right. More questions? There's one in the second row here, um, lady with the white top. Hi, uh, loving the book. Um, do you think, because a lot of most sports journalists are fans, as well, as well as journalists, that they're probably not as sceptical as perhaps they should be. Do you see your role as possibly to question these amazing performances, whether it be Marion Jones a metre ahead at Sydney, or you know what's been going on in cycling particularly? It's difficult because you know I'm at the moment you know with the Armstrong um, business, I'm reflecting on the fact that I reported on several tours of France, which were literally not what they looked like when I reported them. It's quite a hard thing to come to terms, and I had to come to terms with it again in 1998 when the whole Festina thing happened. And you live through that, and you suddenly discover that there's a whole murky netherworld of which you are absolutely not aware. I mean, the stuff at Festina, I mean, one, one had absolutely no idea that, that what was going, you know, that there was, you know, illegal slush funds within teams to purchase drugs. One had absolutely no idea of that. And it's, it's not, 
It's partly because as a sport, there is an element with a sports journalist where you you start life as a fan. Um, you know, there is an element of that, and you're you have to not be over sceptical. I would say there is an element of that, but there is also an element that it is very hard to be sceptical because there isn't very much to go on. Um, there are times when you can look at performances um, and you can say this this does not look right, this does not feel right, physically this is, this should not be happening. But it's, it is also quite hard to write that because you have absolutely zero evidence to go on. And then you think, okay, there's something going on here, how do I find out what might be going on? Well, I'll go and ask um, the staff and the riders and the, and the mechanics and the, and the team directors. And they're not going to say, oh yes, this is all going on. You know, you, you, there is a massive, you know, the, the whole doping thing, the problem was there was this epic wall of silence. The authorities couldn't get through it. The only people who could get through it were the police with Festina and with Operation Puerto. And finally, the, you know, the, the anti-doping authorities in the state, but only there because of the intervention of the federal authorities. And if you can put someone up against the wall and say, I'm going to send you to jail if you don't tell me what you're doing, you get an answer. But if you're a sports journalist, you can't put someone up against the wall and say that. You can just be told, go away. But and what you can't do is write, I think this person is doing something illegal because, you know, we have to operate within the laws of libel. We spent, you know, we go, we go on libel courses and we're taught, if you, if you do not presume innocence, you're finished. So it's, it's an immensely hard situation to be in. You can feel as skeptical as you like, and you can read the runes, you can develop, you know, after Festina, I developed my own personal filtration system based on, you know, various criteria. But that was personal. I couldn't, you can't write it because it's complete, you know, it's completely against the laws of libel. And that's the problem. Do you not think that the, the women's track, the British women's track team uh, winning the world record and on five or six successive rides, does that not seem No, not in the slightest, belief? not in the slightest, no, because what, the one thing you can do, if you're lucky, is know a system. And I think the British cycling system, I know that system really well. And I don't think, and that isn't, that is, that isn't starry-eyed idealism. That's the fact that I've spent 10 years with these people. And they let you go where you want. They let you do what you want. Um, there's no, you know, you, and with the women's team pursuit record, what you're looking at is a situation where that sport is in its infancy and massive strides are going to happen. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, so you're going to have a massive stride between 2008 and 2012. What you're not getting is a massive stride between April 2012 and, you know, if you're getting 10 seconds, you might go, that's fine, but, but four or five seconds, that's not, that's not, that's, you know, mm. it's not that unlikely. You've got faith. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, okay. you know, absolutely. More questions? All right, I can see one towards the back. Can we, can we get the microphone right to the end there? So put your hands up again so I can just see you. I can see you at the back here, and I can see you over there. And I can see you. Brilliant. Let's try getting as many questions as we can. I just wonder, um, with regards to Merckx... Sorry, where are I? I'm sorry. I'm here. Okay, I'm here. yeah. I just wonder, with regards to Merckx, um, as unsavory as it might be, if you look at his antecedents, if you look at people like uh, Copy, if you look at people like... Um, uh, Angatil, um, even Tom Simpson, uh, the, the sport is actually riddled with drugs. Um, Lance Armstrong had 500 tests, none of them proved to be correct. Um, don't you think there has to be, therefore, some question marks about Merckx? I mean, there's a Savona incident, okay, that might be an Italian fix, but there were at least um, two occasions after that when he, when he was um, kind of found with, with drugs. So how does that, how, what's your view about Merckx and drugs? Um, my view about Merckx and drugs is that he's alive and in a position to sue. You know, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's that's an impossible question. You know, you can't. You know, you you know, I've just I've just sat here and explained. You know that we we have to function within, you know, within within the laws of libel. You know, and you can't sit here and say, you know, has this happened? You know, you can you can say that there was there was one positive test at the end of his career. The the, the second, you know, the first one we've discussed. The second one was. A cough medicine which is no longer banned. Ephedrine is no longer on the banned list. Um, you can look at one positive test at the end of the career and draw, your, draw, and draw whatever conclusions you like. But I, I can't sit here and and draw conclusions. I, I'm, you know, you, I'm not in a position to do that. You're setting aside your scepticism on that one. Well, right. I, I, can, I can only deal with the facts in front of me. Okay. The facts in front of me are that 
ephedrine is no longer on the banned list. The first test was, you know, not done under conditions which we can judge today. So we're left with one, one failed test at the end of his career. That's what we're left with. Right. right at the back there was a question. Uh, can we get the mic? Half my question's actually just been asked there, but the other half was uh, whether uh, an allegation or proof of drug taking does for you completely destroy uh, the sense of achievement of those riders. Uh, for me, I still think uh, drugs or no drugs, it's still quite impressive. <laughs> well, I mean, this, I think we go back here to what I, what I was saying about Lance Armstrong. To start with, you know, you have to look at where the guy came from. Um, one of the things I wrote, I remember in 2005, when there were allegations circling about Armstrong already, although nothing had been proven at, at, at that point where I wrote them at the end of the tour, that he, his seventh tour. Um, whatever he was doing then, I wrote, was in the, co you know, you couldn't detract from, you couldn't take away from the fact that he was having to do a lot of other things to win the tour as well. So, you, you know, you have to, you know, you have to always keep that in mind, I think. You know, it's not, it's not merely about, you know, in the, you know, putting it, putting an EPO and becoming a winner. It's not quite as simple as that. EPO only adds a, a tiny percentage yeah. on top of yeah. what's required. Uh, but but uh, a quick aside, I mean, don't want to... Sorry? More than that. Well, uh, okay, let's, let's, you know, let's, let's, not, let's not, you know, go down the Going what David Miller yeah. said a few years ago at an event you know. here. Uh, quick aside, um, what should happen? Um, Armstrong's victories are annulled. Will they will they award the tour no, victories? I, I think the I think the adult the, the the possible annulment is almost irrelevant because to me the results of those tours anyway became irrelevant after Operation Puerto because so many of the guys in the in the classification in the upper ranks of the classification of the tour were involved in that that you couldn't take those those top top whatevers fives tens desperate you know you it, it became impossible you know that basically that made it made a mockery of that period of the sport. Mm. And you know, once that's happened, the, result, the question of whether Armstrong is now stripped of the win and, let's say, Jan Ulrich gets here, you, know, you can't give Jan Ulrich the second prize, so you go to third, you know, we, you, know you can't, you know, it's, 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 it's almost an irrelevant argument. I mean, as I said with Armstrong, what's relevant is to look at where he was when he, 20 years ago, where he is now, look at what happened in between and say, what can we learn from it? Yeah. That's what's important. Great. Okay. Towards the back of this... So they're all right at the edges, so it's take a while to get the microphone. Hi. Um, what I wanted to ask about was actually in relation to that. Sorry, I can't actually see you. Can can you, you just here. Would you mind standing up? I'm no sorry problem. to be... No, no, no. I'd like to see no you at all. being asked questions by uh, What I wanted to ask about was in relation to that, the, the business of process and how cycling moves on. Uh, Dave Brailsford this year took on a doctor who had been on the Rabobank team previously and mixed up with... Um, I think it was Rasmussen, and Brailsford said he felt he needed to take on the expertise because he felt they'd lost riders, I think, due to slightly obscure illnesses. Yeah. Um, taking into account David Miller's own experience and indeed uh, Johnny Voiters and uh, Team Garmin as well and what they're committed to, there is a culture of do doping in sport, but we are committed to moving on and that at some level means we've got to come to accommodate these people and their expertise, even yeah. if it's been tainted in the past. And it was to ask, how do you feel we best accomplish that? Well, I think we accomplish it by talking to guys who've taken drugs. I think Miller is the classic example. Um, you know, we need to find out why it's happened and try and prevent it happening again. And, you know, part of the way that Garmin have worked worked around this. They haven't had a blanket ban on previous on drug takers with previous. They've said, right, what can we learn from these guys? Other teams have done that as well. HTC did it as well with Rolf Haldag and Brian Home. Um, I think, you know, personally, I'm not sure that um, Sky saying they wouldn't hire anyone with previous was a, was a particularly wise thing to do. I think Dave has, Dave Brailsford has come around to that way of thinking as well. But I think you have to remember that that scene was set up at a time when Dave didn't have that, broad, that particular broad experience of professional cycling. Um, so yeah, and I think you know, what you have to look at is, is athlete support. I, mean, if, I think the case of Miller is particularly important because you know, Miller was isolated and put in a position where he had no support. And in that situation, you're gonna go and look for support. And if the support is from a guy who's saying you should take drugs, you might well listen to him. 
You look at John, you know, the Johnny Waters interview from, the, from a couple of days ago. Again, that's a, a classic case, you know, where a guy is put in the, you know, the, is put in a position where he has very little alternative, um, and he can either walk away from that and keep a clear conscience or not. Just kind of explain what it was, the John, Johnny Waters. Oh, it was, he gave an interview explaining why he had come to come to use drugs, and it was it was it was a similar situation to Miller. You know, there was there was no alternative. I, mean, I think it was Chris Boardman who said to me. You know, there are lots of guys out there with principles, and I know one of them, and he's now driving a taxi. Wow. It's, you know... It, depressing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the problem. That's what Johnny Waters was up against, you yeah. know? And it's, yeah. it's... It's very... You know, I, I, don't, I don't... My personal position is that you... It, it's hard to condemn guys for using drugs. What, it, what you can condemn them for is their attitude when they're caught and faced with the evidence. Because that's a human thing. And I think, you know, I think it's, I think for us to presume that we're, in, you know, for us to presume, to, for us to judge guys who are not in, who are in a different position to us, facing different temptations, that's, that's, a, that's something that we have to be quite shy of doing. But I think we, that we can judge them when they're caught and how they behave. And I think Miller is the exemplar, and that is how you, sh that is what you should do. Stand up, hold your hand up, say, I did it. This is why I will work to prevent others from doing it, because I recognise it's a bad thing. And then, in, in that case, you, what you're saying is that Lance Armstrong did exactly the wrong thing. I think so. Yes. I mean, Greg Greg Lamond, you know, no, it wasn't. Sorry, no, I'm talking about something else there. But um, it was Greg Lamond who said to Floyd Landis in 2006 when Landis was positive for testosterone after the tour, "You should tell all now." And Landis didn't. And Greg was right. And yeah. you know, if if Lance had, you know, behaved differently, we we might be we'd be in a different position now. Yeah, that's that's the way of it. Okay, well, question on the front row here, and then I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions. Um, first one being, obviously, someone that loves the sport, you know, loves the cycling. Um, how long do you think it would take to kind of for the, the legacy of the doping to kind of come to some kind of end, and what's currently happening mm. to kind of take over? Because mm. obviously, in the past, yeah, obviously, you name all the names, Armstrong, etc., etc. Yeah. Obviously, you're all on it at the time. Obviously, to a man. Well, not not to a man. I mean, let's be let's be quite careful here. But um, in terms of the big guns, yeah, there was competing okay, at that yes, level. Yeah. But on, so on one hand, very exciting, and the well, stuff just now has been said that's not as exciting because. Okay, so we've got two things. So, we've got, we, okay, so we've got the moving on, and then the boring Tour de France question. Well, kind of like you know. People are saying that it's obviously not as exciting because yeah. guys aren't doing... Well, I don't, I don't agree it, with that. I mean, no, I don't agree yeah. either. But what I'm saying is that that's still a, a sort of legacy from the doping is that people have the, have the image of the people attacking left, right, well, and day see, after day, going up, see, I, that's, up, that's not up the, the case. side I mean, of mountains. That's, that's not the case because, I mean, you know, the, the Armstrong tours, a lot of them were no more exciting than, the, you know, than this year's tour on paper. There was plenty going on, plenty to write about, plenty of incident, but they weren't your classic... You know, if we, can, if we can deal with the second question first, the boring tour question, um, what's the, you know, the paradigms, if you like, for, the, for exciting tours de France are 1987, 1986, and 1989, probably, possibly 1983, 1984. That's a very different era. Um, we certainly know that in 1989, the, the most exciting tour ever, probably, the tour when, you know, the Le Monde and Fignol swapped the lead time after time, never by more than a few seconds. What you had there was two riders, one of whom was declining, in the case of Fignol, who was past his best, struggling to come back. Another one, in Greg, who was nowhere near his best form. And you also had the overwhelming favourite, the best rider in the race, who gave them a three and a half minute start. Pedro Delgado missed the prologue. That's what made, you know, I think the problem is that we measure those tours, what we measure, a lot of what we're seeing today by those tours, I think, you know. Well, certainly I do. And I don't think we should. I think we should look deeper. We should look into what more of, you know, what goes on actually on the road. Um, we get a, we get a, we get a, we get a, wrong, a distorted view from television because quite often the most exciting part of a Tour de France stage is the first 50 or 60 kilometres. We don't see it on television. We turn on the television at, what, on, yeah. you know, when, you know, when, when, you know, when Eurosport comes on at two o'clock or whatever, or we pick up the highlights. What we don't see is, you know, what I saw on one stage of this year's Tour, the, the stage at Pierrick for Rodrigo one, which was the first 60 kilometers was astonishing. I've never seen bike racing like it. Absolute madness. Madness. Everybody in pieces, in bits. 
It's like an Amazon. It was like a. It's like a third carrier. It's fantastic. That's the thing I was going to say as well. So, you know, so I don't sure. think we should go. I think the. I think the, the argument about the two being boring is a specious one. For me, but anyway, say, in I, terms of the the, yeah. the less doping now makes it more exciting because well, I think I think fall, on paper it should do because people, people fall apart. Fall people apart. fall apart, exactly. and this, that's exactly the point. It I mean, more realistic. You know, it's yeah, it's it's more human. I mean, you know, you've got people who don't behave, who don't ride consistently. You've got guys, you know, so it's more human. But the other question you ask is, how do we move on? And I think you know, if you, I think we are moving on. I think the fact that you know there are riders from teams like. Um, Europe car, Francis de Jure, Garmin. Garmin winning a Grand Tour is very significant. Wiggins winning a Grand Tour is very significant. You know, you're looking at guys who have a doping past falling away down the classification. I think the thing that everybody, I think one thing that a lot of people have tended to forget about is the fact that we now have a ban on needles. I think that's the truly significant thing. You can't use a needle anymore. You can in the privacy of your own room with the risk that if you get caught, you're going to get banned. If you're found with a needle, you're, you're banned. That's where we are now. And that is a massive sea change because I always think that once a rider has taken that first step, even if it's just iron, recuperation, whatever, nothing banned, putting a needle in your skin, that's a, that's a rite of passage. And you read the doping accounts of doping, as I have done, and that's pretty much a rite of passage. Eliminate the needle, which, they, which, they, which, they, which, you know, which we're on the way to doing, and real, that's the real change. Okay. I, I Sorry, I think we need to stop me rambling on and take another couple well, of questions quickly. I'll try and be quick here. What I want to say is that we've, we've covered the doping issue uh, and cycling is, I know we've got a cloud of doping over cycling, but there are lots of other aspects of it. So uh, let's, let's move on from doping, please. And let's have questions which are about something else. And I'll, try and be, I'll try and be quick and not ramble. I'm sorry. Thank you, William. Um, uh, my question is back on Merckx, actually, and I wondered how you saw his hour record in both the context of his own career and whether it was a risk at that point which you've mentioned in your book, but also relative to what came after and whether Borman really did a brilliant job beating that or there was completely different Yeah, I think, I think obviously the hour record speaks for itself. It was an immense achievement. And what's more, perhaps the most immense thing about it was that it was done in a way which compared to Boardman 20 years on, 20 years on, yeah, 20 years on, was 20, 25 years on, was quite amateurish. They didn't have the, they didn't have the skills and the research and the knowledge and the, and the thinkers that Boardman had around him. Um, so it, it is utterly remarkable. Um, but what's depressing, if you like, is the way that the record has been destroyed um, by, the, you know, by officialdom. You know, it should be about the fastest bloke on the fastest bike at the time. Um, you know, and, the, and the parameters on what you can ride should be pretty loose, and it would be much more exciting. It should be about pushing those limits, but unfortunately it's not. Well, Next, one of, sorry. One of the great pictures that I wanted to be able to show tonight, the, the last oh, one. Oh, Merck's collapsing after he gets off the air. No, that, no. there's a picture of him uh, riding on, on the, the drop handlebars. And the, the shape of the ride, of the yeah. way that he rode yeah. back then, and the difference between that and, and the way they ride yeah. now yeah. Um, with their elbows. I, I, what's interesting was that talking to Chris about the, because Chris obviously did a record um, at the end of his career which replicated Merck's, and he said riding in the position that Merck's adopted was ever so difficult because when you're, what he said to me, the difference is that when you're riding on the drops, you're not getting any support out of the bones of your arm. It's all muscular. The support is all muscular. When you're on the on the on the on the on the sticks, as as board, as um, Brad would be in a time trial, you'll get it. You're, the support is going straight into your forearm bones. It's it's it, and you're just much more comfortable. So, what Merckx did was the more remarkable in that context. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yes. We're really not running out of time. We so we'll be quick here. One there. And possibly chance for one more if you if you Yeah, no problem at all. I'll be as quick as I can. Uh, yeah. Sorry to have rambled on. Sorry. I no, I just wondered um, back to sort of the Tour de France this year and maybe, you know, back in the past. I wonder if you thought team radio and the constant, you know, contact with the team cars makes a difference to, to riders these days and maybe you don't see so much attack and it's always so well regulated by the teams now. I think the difference is on the flat stages. I think that's where we see the difference because it's much easier for a team to... I'm, so, I'm sorry to have my eyes up like this. There's a very, very bright light up there. I'm sorry to have my hand up like this. There's a very bright light up there. I think the difference is the flat stages because the teams can regulate things so much better and organise things so much better. And if you've got someone watching television in the team car as well, you can see exactly what's happening. Um, they are, however, pretty important for safety. And I, th I think given the road furniture, um, you know, I think they, they make a difference there. Next one, please. Last one, last one. Make it brief. Here we are in the middle, and then we'll have to draw it to a close. 
Thanks. Uh, just a question about your subjects that you write about. Do you find it more pressure writing about someone that's still alive, like Eddie Merckx, than you did writing about Copy or Tom Simpson? Yes. Um, <laughs> <in a word. laughs> um, absolutely, yes. Uh, and absolutely. with that, I'm, I'm sorry. Mean, no, it's, it's just a human thing because, you know, uh, there's an element. There's an element when someone is dead, there is an element of you feel more responsibility because they can't answer and because you could if you want to write absolutely anything. I mean, you know, within reason, you know, so you feel more responsibility because what you're, what you're dealing with is the legacy of the dead person. But with a, when you're writing about a living person, that's different because you know they're going to be able to read what you write and you can't help wanting them to read it and feel that you've done the job properly. Does that, that's, that's the difference, I think. Okay, one last question for me. Will you bring Bradley Wiggins here next year and, and have a conversation with us? I will endeavour to do that. I will endeavour to do that. We'll hold him to it. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, I, I could certainly listen to William talking all night. Uh, if you want to carry on discussions, we'll be over in the bookshop. Yeah. Uh, please buy this fantastic book. And uh, once again, thank you, William Fotheringham. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. More podcasts, videos and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.